Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah Ashhadu an Muhammad Rasulullah Hayal al Hayal al Hayal al Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar La ilaha illallah Rahim Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen Wa Subhanallah Al-Aliyyil Azim Wa Ashadu Anna La Ilaha Illa Allah Wahdahu La Sharika Lah Wa Ashadu Anna Muhammadan Abduhu Wa Rasuluh Subhanallah نور السماوات والأرض نؤمن به ونستعينه ونستعينه ونستجيره ونستنصره ونستهديه فإنه حق من هدى الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على الحبيب المصطفى خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين
Alhamdulillah I receive a considerable amount of correspondence every week Muslims with different orientations and different issues write me I try of course my best to respond not always successfully and often not successfully because of the the amount of correspondence but among the most challenging and taxing and difficult correspondence that I receive are by women who present a problem that by this day and age I wish was not in existence anymore. And often it is difficult to believe that it is continues to be a problem. These are women who are often find themselves locked in marriages that are either abusive or locked in marriages that they did not desire in the first place and were forced quite often by their parents to enter into It is quite remarkable that a lot of these women are in the United States. Quite often for the women who write who are locked into abusive marriages, the issue is the lack of communal support. And especially what seems like a consistent theme is that they approach local imams in their communities and they don't find a sympathetic party willing to help them. Quite often they complain that the imams and their local communities counsel patients effectively rubber stamping the abuse that they are subjected to by husbands. But today, inshallah, I want to focus on another kind of abuse, and that is the abuse of Muslim women being pressured into entering marriages that they do not desire.
And it is quite remarkable, again, that in the United States, in this day and age, we still have a large number of women who come from traditional families, who immigrated to the United States, and that try to solve the anxiety that they feel as immigrants to this country by forcing their daughters into undesirable marriages, marriages that their daughters don't desire. The position of the parents is easy to understand. These parents are typically worried that their daughters will fall in love with the wrong type of man, that eventually they will fall in love perhaps with a non-Muslim, and that someday they will come to them and say, I want to marry someone who's not a Muslim. But quite often, it is not just that anxiety, but many of these families want their daughters to marry someone from the same ethnicity and same precise cultural background. So not just if they're Indian, for instance, not just do they want their daughters to marry someone who is Indian, but even someone who is from the same area in India. Same ethnicity, same language, same culture. And they exercise a tremendous amount of pressure to eventually pressure their daughters into marrying these individuals. Quite often, these relationships immediately run into problems. And to put it quite simply, culture plays a huge role in shaping and forming the human psychology. If you are raised early on with the expectation that your parents will choose your marriage partner, psychologically, in terms of your consciousness, perhaps you are preparing yourself throughout your life to enter into a relationship which is chosen for you by your parents. 
you might not see this as coercion. And in fact, not only that, you might even find this arrangement desirable. And when your parents pick someone for you, you might feel excited and happy. And psychologically, once you enter into a marital relationship, the entire culture in which you live helps you preserve this marriage for better or for worse. But for so many Muslims who immigrate to the United States, it is highly unjust to try to force that psychological that psychological constitution, that consciousness, that way of saying things on your daughters in a very different cultural setting and very different circumstance. I'm not saying that arranged marriages, if they are coerced, in other countries are fair and just. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is quite often arranged marriages in other cultures are not coerced and not forced. My own family in Egypt, I've seen how young female relatives handle an arranged marriage by their parents. And the idea of coercion doesn't even cross their mind. They are happy with the person that their parents picks because in reality, it is not a marriage of a man to a woman, it's a marriage of family to family. That daughter knows that her entire family is part of the marriage to the other family. And that daughter knows that the culture is set up to help her mediate and negotiate her relationship with her husband. The culture is such that relatives are involved in your marriage, neighbors are involved in your marriage, every person in your neighborhood and in your village is involved in your marriage. There is a long established practice of handling marriages and the psychological makeup of human beings is such that an arranged marriage does not produce trauma. It does not produce other harm. But this is very different 
very different. When in fact there is other, when in fact there is trauma, when in fact you come to a woman whose expectations in life are very different because of a very different cultural experience, or perhaps even that this woman rebels against her own culture and believes in her autonomy and her own right to choose her partner. When that happens, A marriage under pressure produces deep, deep injury to the psychology of the coerced person or the pressured person. And that's precisely what is a serious problem. It amazes me The number of messages I get from young women, young Muslim women from various cultural backgrounds that complain that now that they've reached their 20s, their parents are pressuring them to enter into marriages to someone who is simply of the same ethnicity or a, or a family relationship, or a family friendship, that these relationships are loveless, and often the threat is, if you don't agree to marry this person, we will terminate your education, you will no longer be allowed to go to college, or we will cut you off and consider you a rebel. We will disown you. And sometimes parents even threaten to murder their daughters if they don't accede to the wishes of the parents. Once in these marriages, the daughters are told it is your duty to remain married even if you do not love your spouse, even if you cannot stand your spouse, and that if you attempt to leave your husband, we will disown you, and in some cases, there are even threats of physical violence. We will murder you, we will kill you, And in this scenario, what has become a pattern and practice is that the poor woman in this situation will seek out religious authority, imams, only to find that imams are unsympathetic and uncaring and will often side with the parents and be told 
that part of your obligation to honor your parents is to remain in a coerced marriage, a loveless marriage. Let me put it very bluntly and very starkly. I am baffled by parents who expect their daughters to surrender their bodies to men they don't love. Allah has not willed that I have a daughter, but if I did, the idea that I would expect my daughter to give herself sexually to a man she does not, does not love shakes me to the core. And isn't that when we strip all the niceties, isn't that the heart of what we are doing to these women? Whether you like a person or not, whether you love the person or not, live as a wife, perform as a wife, and if you don't, you will be ostracized by the community, you will be disowned by your family, and you might even be killed by your family. These parents are without honor. They are parents without honor. Let me send this message loud and clear. If you are a parent and you expect your daughter to lay in the bed of a man she does not love, you are a parent without honor. You are in the youth. In the youth. Someone as bad as a pimp. As bad as a pimp. Because of your own insecurities. And your own fears. And because of your egoism and your patriarchal obsessions and your misogyny. You expect your daughter to submit her body without love, without feeling, without passion. And then you say you love your daughter? Then you say that you're a man with honor or a man with religion, faith, Islam. That's not Islam. That's not faith. No matter how you window dress it, it is not Islam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when Allah tells us 
ومن آياته أن خلق من أن خلق لكم من أنفسكم أزواجا. God created for you partners, أزواج. لتسكنوا إليها وجعل بينكم مودة ورحمة. So that you can find peace and repose with them. And what is the nature of the relationship that Allah wants between you? Mawadda. Mawadda. Love. Warahma. Mercy and compassion. So when you force your daughter into a relationship where she does not feel the mawadda, she doesn't feel it. To tell your daughter, well, you should feel it. I like your husband. So you should feel compassion and mawadda. Is it you who are submitting his body every night to that man? Why don't you go sleep with him? If you like him so much. You go sleep in his bed. But you cannot force your daughter in that position and sit there and stroke your ego about how wonderful you are as a Muslim. On Ibn Abbas, from Ibn Abbas, who reported that the Prophet ﷺ, and Ibn Abbas, sorry, who reported that a woman came to the Prophet ﷺ, فذكرت أن أباها زوجها وهي كارها. She said, "My father." forced me, pressured me into a marriage. And I really didn't want this marriage. Did the Prophet ﷺ sit there and say, how did he force you? Did the Prophet ﷺ sit there and say, did you put a gun to your head? Did the Prophet ﷺ say, did he threaten you with a knife? Did the Prophet ﷺ say, did he threaten to bury you in the desert? No. The Prophet ﷺ responded by saying, you were forced into this marriage? Yes, I was forced. So he said, you have a choice. Return his dowry and you're free. Or don't and stay in the marriage. You have a choice. In a hadith narrated by Daraqutni, Shu'ayb ibn Ishaq an al-Awza'i an Ata' an Jabir in a very famous report That a man 
coerced or compelled or forced his daughter to marry her cousin. The woman goes to the Prophet and says, My father forced me to marry my cousin, meaning he did it to elevate his own status, his social status, his economic status. So the Prophet ﷺ immediately brought the father and the husband and said, she has a choice. If she wants, she can return the dowry and she's free. And if she wants, she can keep the dowry and stay in the marriage. The woman at that point in a hadith narrated by Aisha utters a statement that resonates through the centuries. At that point, the woman says, you know what? I actually want to stay in this marriage. But I did what I did to assert a principle, to affirm a principle. Aradtu an u'alima an-nisa'an laysa ila al-abai min al-amri shay'i. I wanted to make a point that all women know that it is up to us, not up to our fathers. So this woman ultimately stayed in the marriage, but she wanted to make a point. It's not up to the fathers, it's up to us women to decide who we surrender our bodies to. Now, of course, male patriarchy had a huge problem with these reports in which the Prophet ﷺ clearly and unequivocally believes the woman no investigation, doesn't sit there and say, oh, were you really coerced? How were you threatened? So jurists who were men, of course, sat there and say, well, you know, you have to prove coercion that is compelling. And all of that is the product of patriarchy. The will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very clear. There is no coercion. La ikrah. And the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is very clear. Your body is yours. You decide who to surrender it to and who do not. You do not. It is obscene. Obscene. that there are still Muslims today that look at a woman and say, 
give your body to a man even if unwillingly otherwise the angels will curse you that's obscene In an event, in an incident among so many that I get that are like this. When I informed the woman in question about the famous story of Thabit ibn Qais. Thabit ibn Qais was married to a woman. The woman goes to the Prophet and says, I want to leave my husband. The woman is actually clear. I find no fault in him. Neither in his personality nor religion. But I can't stand him. The Prophet says the same thing again. He gave you a garden as a dowry, return the garden, return the dowry, and you're free. The woman in question goes to an imam and as usual in our gallant imams the imam tells her no you have to stay with your husband imam i can't stand him how about the story of thabit ibn qais the imam tells her well thabit ibn qais was a very ugly man and because he was so ugly that's why the prophet Give her the right to divorce him. Now we're getting, now we're getting into bigotry. I'll tell you what the origin of this ugly story is. Among the reports, among the reports, is that the woman tells the Prophet ﷺ that I can't stand Thabit ibn Qais to the extent to the extent لَوْلَا مَخَافَةُ اللَّهِ لَوْ دَخَلَ عَلَيَّ الْبَابِ لَبَصَقْتُ فِي وَجْهِهِ to the extent that if I didn't fear God, every time I would see him, I would spit at him. Interpreters, who of course were men, said, well, why would she spit in the face of that man? It must be that he was really ugly. And so they injected is justification for the narration. They injected it 
that Thabit ibn Qais was a very ugly man. He was a Dameen. While if you research the story of Thabit ibn Qais, that's the only time we have the description of him as an ugly man. Otherwise, Thabit ibn Qais is described as a very normal man, a very regular man. The far more common versions of this narration, the far more authentic versions of this narration, say, ما أعيب عليه في خلق ولا دين ولكني أكره الكفر في الإسلام. I don't fault his moral character and I don't fault his piety. But you know what, Prophet of God? I fear that if I stay married to this man, it will test my faith. It will make me less pious as a Muslim. Not because Thabit is an impious man, but because living a life without love can often test your faith. Living a life without love can make you do what a lot of these women do, blame Islam for their predicament. Living a life without love can often do what a lot of these women go through. Start losing their relationship with Allah. No longer feel anything when they pray or read Quran. After all, they live a life of sexual captivity. Feeling that they are forced to surrender their bodies to men they don't love. To appease their parents. Yes, it does test your faith. Staying married to this man who I can't stand is weakening my faith. And in yet another version of the report, The woman just says, I don't fault him for anything. I just can't stand him. And in yet other versions, the Prophet comments, Subhanallah, how hearts are in the, between the fingers of Rahman. A woman could just not stand her husband or a husband could not stand his wife for no reason. If there are children, then we have to talk about the rights of children. But when there are no children, then the priority has to be the relationship that draws you closer to Allah. And if you exist in a loveless life, you will often not know how to love Allah. 
What often happens with these poor women is their parents push them into these marriages and pressure to get them pregnant. And once they're pregnant, they're stuck. Because now you have to worry about the rights of the children. People, Muslims, grow up. Grow up. At the same time that Allah taught us in the Quran, la ikrah, no coercion. And at the same time that our Prophet ﷺ repeatedly taught that women have a right to autonomy and freedom in marriage. Imagine this. Every jurist would tell you if you force a woman to eat when she doesn't want to eat, that's haram. If you force a woman to drink when she doesn't want to drink, it's haram. If you force a woman to jump hula hoops when she doesn't want to jump hula hoops, that's haram. If you force a woman to exercise when she doesn't want to exercise, that's haram. If you force a woman to do anything, it's haram. But then they come to having sex with husbands they don't love. And here they say, ah, well, you know, the angels could curse you almost. How is it that ikrah is okay? It's not okay in all affairs of life. But when it comes to a woman's body and her sexual integrity, Men have to learn that the sanctity of a human body at a minimum starts with the principle of no coercion. You can't torture a human being. You can't rape a human being. You can't make another human being suffer. And when that human being is your daughter, is your daughter, and you're making her suffer in the most degrading fashion, after that you think you're a Muslim? You think your prayers are accepted? You think your fasting is accepted? You think anything about you as a Muslim is accepted? You are a man with no honor. You are a dishonorable man. For all these women who like to call themselves feminists, and every once in a while I see that they're on the net, on the net yapping about feminism, and why don't you do something real for the sake of women's rights? Why don't you raise money 
legal funds. So what, when a Muslim woman wants to leave her husband, you can help her by hiring legal representation because a lot of these women are trapped in relationships with no means. They can't hire a lawyer. They can't get a job. They would live in fear of their parents doing them harm. You women out there who call yourself feminists, why don't you do something real? Raise money. Work with me. And we can create a situation where any of these women, if they want lawyers, we get them lawyers. If they want shelters, we get them shelters. If they want jobs, we get them jobs. And if they want protection from their criminal parents, we get them protection from their criminal parents. That's the feminism I understand. But you know what? That's the Islam that I understand. That's what my Islam teaches me. I don't get this from Western values. I get this from the heart of my Iman. Sure, misogyny had to come in and sully the waters. And so you find hadith reported by Abu Huraira saying, if a woman asks her husband for a divorce without just cause, she is cursed by the angels till the final day. All the jurists, as opposed to Ahl al-Hadith, all the usulis, said that the Hadith of Abu Huraira is too weak to have any legal effect. Of course, the Ahl al-Hadith, which are the Muslims of today pretty much, made the isolated report by Abu Huraira equal to the numerous reports that affirm the right of a woman to choose her marriage. When I say grow up, know that your tradition, like all religious traditions, has been sullied by misogyny and patriarchy. And have the bravery to say what is misogynistic cannot come from our Prophet because it contradicts the Quran. Because the Quran that honored women and told them your relationship with your husbands must be built on mawadda, warahma, love and mercy. That Quran cannot tell women You should shut your mouth and surrender your bodies to men you don't love. It cannot be. It cannot be. And if you don't see that, then there is a serious problem in the way that you understand Islam. <laughs> بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم
الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والصلاة والسلام على محمد النبي الأمين خاتم الرسل والأنبياء أجمعين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين Among the funniest things is that there are men that hear something like this and say, oh yes, Khalid al-Fadl is a liberal. Really? Defending the integrity of a woman's body and her honor is liberalism? Shame on you. What happened to your sense of integrity and honor? It's not Islam, it's liberalism? Or Khadab al-Fadl is westernized? Since when? Since when has honor and integrity and justice became westernized? If that is not Islam, then why are you a Muslim? The justice, the ethics, the virtue that I learned, I learned from the Quran and from the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. My virtue doesn't come from liberalism or Americana or Christendom or Judaica. My virtue comes from Islam. And so should your virtue. Because of inquiries and interests. Last khutbah, I talked to you about female reciters of the Quran. I want to thank Medina Javed, herself a qari'a, who sent me a sizable amount of scholarship on the tradition of female reciters of the Quran. I started doing just a superficial count of women qari'as that I could count in the past hundred years that at least had recorded recitations that I found on YouTube. And I'm not even done. And by now I've counted about 70. Initially, I thought I'm going to come here and I'm going to read to you the name of the Qari'as. But very soon it became overwhelming. I was documenting near 70 Qari'as who recited correctly. 
But I want to comment on a particular tradition because of some misunderstandings I found in the scholarship. At the beginning, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, the Quran station in Egypt started broadcasting famous sheikhs, female reciters of the Quran, like Sakina Hassan, Munira Abdu, Sheikh Sakina Hassan, Sheikh Munira Abdu, Sheikh Karim Al Adliya, Sheikh Khokh Ismail, Sheikh Munira Ahmad Al Hudari, Sheikh Atiyat Ibrahim. And that tradition of female reciters of the Quran being on radio station continued to exist until the end of the 1930s when Egypt no longer broadcasted female reciters of the Quran and that rule continues till today. I read in the literature two things that this must be commented on. One that said the tradition of female reciters of the Quran started about a hundred years ago because there used to be the profession of professional female wailers at funerals. That when there is a funeral, women would go out and they would be hired to scream and cry and that the tradition of female Quran reciters rose, emerged from the tradition of female wailers. The second thing is that according to the literature, female reciters of the Quran stopped being broadcasted on the Quran radio station in Egypt because there was a fatwa by Azhar in the 1930s that the voice of a woman is aura, and that's the reason they no longer were broadcasted. Both of these points are wrong. The tradition of female reciters of the Quran doesn't and did not, like Mahmoud al-Sa'dani claimed, emerge from the tradition of female wailers. Female whalers is a well-known profession. It's a gilded profession in countries like Egypt that goes back centuries. And it has nothing to do with the Quran reciter guilds. The Quran reciter guilds, which included women, have chains of transmission where these women, many of these sheikhs, would learn to recite the Quran according to the 10 Qiraat in a continuous chain and continuous lineage going back all the way to the Prophet ﷺ. And you would find that they were taught by women sheikhs like their sheikhs were taught by sheikhs and their sheikhs were taught by sheikhs. So the tradition of female reciters of the Quran goes back centuries, not a hundred years. And as importantly, many 
people don't know that these female reciters of the Quran taught men who became very famous reciters of the Quran themselves. And to our very day, there are still very famous sheikhs in places like Morocco and Egypt and Algeria and Indonesia and Malaysia of women who don't just recite the Quran, but they've studied the Quran with a continuous chain of transmission according to the Tan Qira'at. The second point, Female reciters of the Quran be dried up from the airwaves because not of a fatwa by Azhar. There is no such fatwa. You can search all you want. There is no such fatwa. That's a complete fiction. Female reciters of the Quran dried up because of the influence of Wahhabi Islam and the rise of puritanical Islam in the 1940s. And especially after the defeat in the war of Palestine, the Nakba, where Muslim culture became increasingly conservative. Because Muslim men, as always happens, when they confront political and military defeat, they take it out on their women. Periods of conservatism and misogyny are always at a sky high at points of military defeat. I will close with a point that is very important and I would be remiss not to mention it. Perhaps many Muslims don't know, I'm sure all of you heard that there is a war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And I'm sure that most of you know that this war is about a region called Nagorno-Karabakh. And that this region is historically part of Azerbaijan, but it has a majority population who are ethnic Armenians. And that Nagorno-Karabakh de declared itself an independent state and was recognized by no one except one state, Armenia. And that Armenia sent military forces to protect the enclave that declared itself a state that was not recognized by any other country. And most of you don't know that what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh is that the ethnic Armenians kicked out the Azeris from that region, they killed about 30,000 Muslim Azeris and ejected from the enclave about a million Muslim Azeris. And that the war now is because Azerbaijan wants Nagorno-Karabakh back as occupied territory, territory occupied by Armenia because that land belongs to Azerbaijan. And that is the position of the United Nations, and that is the position of international law. And the ethnic cleansing that took place in Nagorno-Karabakh against Muslims is a genocide. But here is the doozy. 
Because there always has to be. How many of you know that the city of Los Angeles has made a declaration, official declaration, supporting the Armenians? That in the declaration, they call Nagorno-Karabakh what the Armenians call, in the same way that the Israelis call the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria, well, the Armenians don't call that region Nagorno-Karabakh. They call it Artsakh. And the city of Los Angeles, in making that declaration, calls that region Artsakh. And in that declaration, American Armenians, lawmakers, came up, stood in a line, with fellow Christian lawmakers from Los Angeles and the mayor of Los Angeles and other officials of Los Angeles stood there supporting Artsakh, although it's not recognized by any country in the world. They stood there saying, no, Artsakh has a right to be a free country. And any war by Azerbaijan to try to kick out Armenian army from Artsakh is unlawful and illegal. And they stood there saying that Turkey and Azerbaijan are sending terrorists, jihadis, from Syria and Libya to fight against the Christian Armenians, although there is no evidence the Azeris don't need fighters from Syria or Libya. But we all know why they're saying this. They're saying this to invoke the Muslim terror card, the jihadis. So, of course, if the jihadis are going to fight on the side. Now, mind you, mind you. So many Americans volunteered to go fight with Kurds, with the Kurds, against Sunnis, against Shi'is, against Daesh, against ISIS, against the world, and no one had a problem. No one called these Americans who went volunteer to fight for a Kurdish cause. No one called them fanatics. No one called them extremists. No one called them jihadis. No one called them anything. Because they're Christians. Or without a faith. Who knows why they, they chose to support the Kurdish cause. We don't have a problem when any Christian country comes to the aid of any Christian country. We didn't have any problem when we invaded Iraq unlawfully and illegally. And France came and helped us in our illegal invasion. And Britain came and helped us in our illegal invasion. And Canada came and helped us with our illegal invasion. No one called these countries extremists or jihadis. Why did the city of Los Angeles do this? Because of the influence of Armenian-American politicians. This is the problem with Muslims. How many Muslims live in Los Angeles? 
And yet they are completely powerless. They're not involved in politics. They don't have political clout. They don't have political positions. Because Armenian Americans donate a heck of a lot of money to buy political influence, while Muslims buy expensive cars and expensive homes. So after all these years and all the millionaires, all the Muslim millionaires that live in Westwood and in Beverly Hills and in Malibu, and I know dozens of them, the city of Los Angeles takes, ignores the ethnic cleansing of Muslims completely. According to that, that conference held by the mayor of Los Angeles and LA politicians, the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh are blameless, faultless, innocent victims. They committed no ethnic cleansing. They didn't kill and slaughter Muslims. They didn't close down mosques and turn them into barnyards, into barns for animals. They, don't, they didn't even mention Muslim victims at all. They just sat there talking about how jihadis are flocking to fight their Christian brethren and how the city of Los Angeles demands that the federal government stand against Turkey and against Azerbaijan and support the independence of the Christians of Astrakh. Where is Muslim Public Affairs Council? Aren't you an LA organization? Where's the political clout that you spent 30 years building? Where's Bayan? And all those rich Muslims who donated millions of dollars to Bayan. Why are you... Astaghfirullah al-Ali al-Azim. اللهم اغفر لنا اللهم اعف عنا اللهم ارحمنا اللهم اهدي اللهم اهدي المسلمين واصلح حالهم يا رب العالمين الله forgive our sins grant us the straight path and the path of light يا رب الله الله aid us aid us so that we can wake up from our slumber and represent your faith as it should be represented. The face of enlightenment and beauty and truth and justice. For that is the only face that comes from you, Ya Rabbal Alameen. Wa